What was going on? Well, Martin Luther was a man who was a very serious man. He was very serious about the most important things in the universe. Namely, he was intensely concerned with the most fundamental question that any human being could ever ask. How can I be right with God? And as a Roman Catholic monk, he had devoted his life to finding the answer to that question. But the answers that the church kept giving him always left him empty and guilty before God and tortured in his conscience because he knew that no matter how many times he performed penance, no matter how many times he confessed every minute detail of all of his conscious sins to the priest, no matter how much he delved into mysticism and self-discipline and harsh treatment of his body, no matter how far he went in obeying all the commands and the methods and the works that the Roman Catholic Church placed on his shoulders, he knew that he was still condemned in God's sight. And he knew that he was still guilty under God's law and hopeless to do anything about it on his own. That was the impetus of the Protestant Reformation. Ultimately, it was the spiritual struggle of one man, one man who desperately wanted to be right with God, to be forgiven and accepted by God. Martin Luther was not a proud, arrogant man who set out to change the church and the world. He was a humble and broken man who saw his emptiness and his bankruptcy before a holy God and could not rest until he found peace with God. And so how did Luther come to resolve this question, this conflict that would not let him rest? How did he come to know that he was righteous in God's eyes even though he knew that he was still a sinful, fallen, weak man? Well, sometime before this day, sometime before October 31st, 1517, Luther rediscovered the gospel of Jesus Christ in the writings of the Apostle Paul, particularly in the book of Romans. And as he was studying the book of Romans in order to teach it to his students at the University of Wittenberg, he came across these words in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. The words that were read to us this morning in our assurance of pardon. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther wrote about these words from Romans 1. He said, I sought long and knocked anxiously for the, for the expression the righteousness of God blocked the way. As often as I read that declaration, I wished always that God had not made the gospel known. The struggle with Luther was that he, when, when he first read that in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, he thought that it meant that there is a righteousness that we have to produce in order to be right with God. And Luther knew that he didn't have any righteousness of his own. So initially these words didn't help Luther at all. He says they blocked the way. And they condemned him. And they drove him into despair. But then a miracle happened. And it was the kind of miracle that every one of us who is a true Christian has experienced as well. By the power of the Holy Spirit moving in his word and through his word, Luther saw that the righteousness of God is not a righteousness that you and I have to create or have to attain to. It is a righteousness that God himself gives us. 
It is a righteousness that God clothes us with. It is a free gift of God's grace through faith. The righteous will live by faith. And Luther said that those words that before had so terrified him and condemned him, instead became his dearest and most comforting words. He says, this expression of Paul's became to me, in very truth, a gate to paradise. That is the foundation and the force behind what we know today as, as the Protestant Reformation. It was the rediscovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Next to the Apostle Paul, it could be said that this German monk, Martin Luther, is the most significant figure in church history. Not because Luther was perfect. He was far from it and he knew it. And not because necessarily he was more brilliant than other men, even though he was a genius. Next to the Apostle Paul, Martin Luther is the most significant figure in church history precisely because he rediscovered the very same gospel that the Apostle Paul lived and died for. There's obviously much more that can be said about Luther and the Reformation, but suffice it to say that, that as, as the doctrine of justification by faith alone became clearer and clearer to Luther, his understanding of authority also became clearer. And he realized that his, that his highest allegiance must go to the authority of God and the Holy Scriptures, not to the church councils and not to popes. And this reliance on scriptural authority led to, to denounce all kinds of traditional Roman Catholic teachings like purgatory, like the efficacy of indulgences, like the sacramental priesthood, clerical celibacy, transubstantiation, on and on and on. Luther was a wrecking ball used in God's hands to tear down centuries of corrupt doctrine and to prepare the way for more faithful expressions of the church built on the solid foundation of biblical authority and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the final analysis, the Protestant Reformation was the work of God Almighty using weak men like Martin Luther. It was the work of God Almighty who established the authority of his word and the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, first in a man and then in a region, and then in a continent, and then in a world. So yes, we are right to celebrate this day. And one of the most significant ways that we can celebrate it is to gladly sit under the authority of this word. This word that struck Luther and killed his pride and his despair and brought him to life. And that's what we're here to do. Pastor Bailey, come and open God's word to us. You can just come and sit up on the carpet so you won't get cold. Climb on up. Sit down. Now, you're not going to be able to all get on there, but you can try, eh? Sounds like somebody's unhappy, doesn't it, huh? Hello, Cynthia. How are you, sweetie? Good morning. How are you? 
When Jesus was going to go back up to heaven, there's a very famous passage that you probably all know where Jesus said, in my Father's house are what? Many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to what? Prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will what? Come again, that where I am, there you may be also. Excellent. Very, very good. Now, that's a very famous verse, and you can imagine that I mention that a lot at funerals, can't you? It's a wonderful promise that when we die, we go to be with Jesus if we have placed our faith in him. But you know, right before he said that, he talked about something else, and that's peace. He said, my peace I leave with you. And then he said, the peace that he leaves with us is not the peace of the world. Now tell me, what kind of peace does the world have? You know what peace is. Yes, what, what kind of peace? No, not like fighting. Not like fighting, so try to stop bloodshed, Right. Try to keep people from punching each other, right? And when you drive, how does, how does the government keep peace? Huh? I don't really know that. You don't know that? Oh, yes, you do. Okay, how does it keep peace? That's right. That's right. The right speed limit and don't crash. How else? Yes. Yeah, police, that's an important part of keeping peace with cars. Yes? Okay. But the image I have that's most important is what? It's traffic signals and stop signs. Can you imagine if you got to an intersection and there was no indication who should go when? Everybody would just go when they wanted to and what would happen? Everybody would crash, right? So when it comes to driving, they have signs, they have laws, they have policemen to enforce them. They've got traffic signals saying when to stop and when to go. They've got stop signs. There are a whole bunch of laws that say how we get along in cars. Otherwise, we would crash, wouldn't we? Now, how about countries? How are countries kept at peace? Yes. Well, you forgot. Well, yeah, I know, but how does that happen? I mean, normally countries do fight each other. Yes. That's right. They have governments to decide when we should and when we shouldn't have wars. And sometimes governments disagree, right? And then how do we have peace? (laughs) That's right. We don't. (laughs) Like, say two countries don't agree where their fence should be. All right, like like two houses next to each other. The two countries don't agree where their border should be. What do they do? They go to war, don't they? And then, after a while, the war is over. Some wars are over very, very quickly. Some wars can go on for 40 years. But when the war is over, what happens? How do you establish the peace again? Have you ever had your older brother play uncle with you? You know, where he takes your arm, he twists it, and he says, say, uncle. And if he twists hard enough and he's stronger than you, and your parents aren't watching, (laughs) 
and he's really aggressive, he can get you to say, Uncle, can he? That's the kind of way that, well, (laughs) he said, no, I just punched the living daylights out of him. Well, that's a certain kind of peace, isn't it? Where you've got your arm behind your back, it's being shoved up, and you say uncle, and when you say uncle, that's called unconditional surrender. And that's when peace is established, isn't it? Because you submitted to your older brother. All right? Now, I could keep going. I could talk about marriages. Sometimes your parents fight. And sometimes they fight so badly that they have to go into a counselor and sit down. And the counselor is like a policeman. He's a traffic cop. And he says when one's driving too fast and slow, when they should stop, when they should start. And basically, he, t- he tells them to fight fair. But sometimes we have to have fighting, don't we, to get peace. You know, your mom and dad are talking to each other and your dad says, and your mother goes, and your dad goes, right? That doesn't mean they're getting divorced, does it? It just means they've got a problem and they better work it through. Now, do you think this ever happens with Christians in a church? You ever been or ever heard your parents talk about a congregational meeting that was nasty, where everybody yelled at each other? I'm going to talk about one in the sermon today where it became a riot. And what's wrong? Christians fight, but then your parents are Christians and they fight, don't they? Now, you might not see it. They might go up to their bedroom and shut their door when they fight. But there's no human relationship between two sinners, two nations, where you don't at times have to have arguments and work through problems. Now, in the church, what is it that should allow us to be at peace with each other? Is it just that we work hard on our problems and fight them through and then we're okay? What is it that we get peace from? Yes. God. Yes. And specifically, Jesus Christ. Jesus said he'd leave peace with us. Yes. J-E-S-U-S. That's right. J-E-S-U-S. Jesus. And how does Jesus bring peace to us? Huh? Now, this is this, the, you're probably not going to be right, but I'll let you have a hack at it. Yes. That's very good. Yes, he gives us the word of God. Now, how does the word of God bring peace? Don't people fight over the Bible? Yeah, they do. So how does the word of God bring peace? He wrote it. Yeah. Yes, prayer through scripture. But they're just not like magic wands that you like, you know, and there's peace, right? A lot of times in the church, what we fight over is what exactly the Bible does really say. Martin Luther and the Roman Catholic Church had a big battle, and Martin Luther almost got killed. Everybody thought he was going to be killed. They were fighting. And what Martin Luther said is, look, I'm not going to submit to all of the rules that you've set up unless you can show me without any question that these rules are given in the Word of God. And you look at Scripture, and you see there a rule book for Christians. And you can have arguments over the rules, but you know that the rules are there and that they mean something. But also, Jesus gives us peace, because as we look to Jesus, we see that when he was attacked, what did he do? Huh? He didn't do anything. That's right. He like, go ahead. Take me. 
He didn't answer them back. It says, like a sheep before shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth, right? Yeah, and his disciples weren't as peaceful as he was. Peter took out his sword and tried to cut off the guy's head and missed. And got his ear, right? Jesus put the ear back on and healed it. And so, think of Scripture, think of prayer, but think of Jesus who, when he was taken to the cross, was silent. If Jesus loves you, can you put up with your older brother twisting your arm behind your back? Yes, you can. You can. So let's pray and ask Jesus to make us lovers and peacemakers. Jesus, we thank you that you have given us a model to follow with peace. Peace in the church, peace in our marriages, peace with our brothers and sisters, peace on the playground. Father, I pray that you will give the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to these children, that when they're playing with others, when they're with their brothers and sisters, and when they're in any place where there is no peace, help them to remember the rules in your word. Help them to remember to pray, and we pray that you will give them the peace of Jesus Christ that passes all understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, thanks. Please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. In the church, there have been a number of, over the years, there have been a number of different um, mottos. And one of the mottos of the Protestant church is the motto, the church reformed, what? The church reformed, always reforming. And it can be the habit of all of us in our marriages, with our families, and in the church to look back on a great conflict in the past and to think, well, I'm glad that's over. Now we've arrived and we can sit back and rest. But it never happens. It doesn't happen in marriage. About the time that you think your marriage is only joy, it becomes anything but joy. And uh, it's because we all live in a sinful condition. Those of us who are Christians are sinners. And consequently, um, selfishness, uh, pride, lust, greed, envy, all of these things continuously well up within us and need to be brought back to a peaceful condition. Now we have here um, a text which I think uh, I'd like to present to you as part of the constant reforming of the church. Now, this is not typical. We wouldn't normally, on uh, the day that we celebrate the great work of the Reformers, refer to a text of ethics, of do this, don't do that. But as I look at us as a congregation, um, my conviction is that we don't need so much the doctrinal battles as much as we need the practical battles. Uh, we need to be taught to love one another now, I, as I was preparing, I was thinking, well, people will think who are new that we have problems fighting in our church. And actually, um, I'd be happy for any pastor I know to come into this church and come to our elders meetings and congregational meetings. And they would all be envious because this is a church that is at peace. But 
you don't get good things by, again, overlooking them and not working and being disciplined. And so I want us to remind ourselves, particularly in our marriages, in our homes and in the church, how it is that peace comes. Think of this as the church reformed, always reforming. Think of us as bringing reformation to our homes and to the church and to our marriages by us following these specific instructions. We can't rest on our laurels. We have to work for peace. Now let's hear the word of God in Colossians 3. It says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you will bring peace, that it will start with us as a church, that it will start with us in our marriages and in our families. We pray that you will bring peace to our dormitories, to our classrooms, to the floor of the factory and the shop, to our neighborhoods, and that the peace of Christ will dwell in us and rule us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to welcome new members into Church of the Good Shepherd, and it's fitting for us to remind ourselves what kind of family life God wants us to have. What should our family life be like here as Church of the Good Shepherd? Well, we are reminded at the beginning that we have been chosen of God and that we are holy and loved. Now, doesn't that go a long way towards establishing peace if you know that you're loved? Um, I don't think any wife has ever fought with her husband who was absolutely confident of her love at that moment. I mean, most fights in marriages are an effort on the part of the husband or the wife to establish, am I really loved? And uh, if you think about the love of Jesus Christ that's shed abroad among us, you think, well, you know, what's the big deal, really? I mean, what is the big deal? If we're loved by Jesus Christ, why would we be insecure? You know, why would we be striving with one another? You can bring somebody into a room where there's been a terrible fight and just their presence brings calm to the room because all of a sudden you're able to see what's going on, you know? Well, we're reminded at the very beginning that we have been chosen by God, that we are holy and that we are beloved. And then come the ethical instructions, the commands, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Um, a couple of commentators at this point made note of the fact that in Greek there's no word for humility. 
Uh, you can imagine that this maybe was a, a country and a nation that had a little bit of a problem with pride, right? Do you as a wife, do you as a husband have a word for humility? I often hear children who come in to talk about their lives uh, say that they never, ever, ever heard their father apologize and say he was wrong. And even though he might know the word humility, uh, it's obvious that this is not a word that he's familiar with. And it's a great tragedy when that father claims to be a follower of the Lord and is not able to admit that he is wrong. Now, why is it that we are chosen? If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, you'll see this statement made in the Old Testament about those that God chose. It says, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And it's such a tragedy today when uh, Christians think that they ought to go for the wealthy people in town and the people that are leaders, because then God's work will, will progress so much more effectively. And yet that's the exact opposite of what we see with what God says about his choice of the Jews. His choice of the Jews was not because they had all the wealth of Egypt. It wasn't because they had the largest army. But it says very clearly here, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But why? Why did the Lord choose them? Because it says in Deuteronomy 7 verse 8, the Lord loved you. And kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. When finally we are asked the question, how it is that we repented and believed, what's the answer? The answer is that God loved us, that he set his affection on us. And there is no better answer. A lot of the mistakes that people make in understanding Scripture is trying to come up with some answer beyond the simple statement, God loved us. And there isn't. It's not because we worked hard. It's not because of anything that we do ourselves, but simply because he set his affection and his love on us. Now, here in Colossians 3, we have instructions we're to follow for our family life. And I want us to focus our attention this morning on verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is the center of this text. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The calling of members of the body of Christ is peace. Now, this is a very popular thing today. Um, again, Let's not act as if we live in a vacuum. We live in the United States of America, the year 2004. Uh, the election's going to happen this next week. Every newspaper, every blog, every uh, website, every television program is focused on the question of peace. And uh, Osama bin Laden says if we get rid of George Bush, we'll have peace. Um, John Kerry says if we get rid of George Bush, George Bush says if we don't elect John Kerry, we'll have peace, although it'll be difficult. And so everybody's saying, elect me because I'll give you peace. 
Some people say peace will come through more bloodshed. Some say peace will come through less bloodshed. Some people say that they're too sophisticated and proud to fight. Other people are humble enough to fight. Um, and it's all about peace. Now we can argue about that. And the truth is, nobody knows. Nobody knows what will lead to peace between the Mideast and the United States. Nobody knows what's going to lead to peace between the Palestinians and the Jews in the land of Israel. Uh, we can all have our theories, and it might be fun to get into a big circle and have out at it this morning. But ultimately, um, time will tell, and even time may not tell. It might be a liar. You know, everybody thought that Stalin had been a good ally in the Second World War, and then the entire Eastern Bloc went under uh, communism. And, and that, if that's called peace, I don't know what war is. Fifty to sixty million people starved to death and killed by that man. But we made a truce with him, and he got all those countries. And when history is written, it'll show that those who were in a position of power and should have known better were really quite foolish in the way they made peace. Now... I'm not trying to make any political points this morning. I'm simply saying that all of us claim to be committed to peace, right? And a lot of the vote is going to depend upon what you think ultimately will bring peace. Well, we can't afford to have that be the peace that we as Christians believe in. Because uh, as Christians, we ought to be smart and wise enough to realize that as long as we live in this world and are not governed directly in a theocracy by God, there is going to be war. There's going to be divorce. There's going to be uh, children hating their parents. There's going to be uh, mayors who make decisions for their cronies. There are going to be, going to be states that uh, have justices who uh, declare open season on the unborn children in the womb and their blood will flow. Uh, there's going to be nations that uh, have... Uh, rebels grow up within them and seek to assassinate their leaders. Uh, you read the Old Testament and you see what kind of peace there is in this sinful world where, you know, son after son kills his father. Um, and so none of us are deluded into thinking that peace is going to come in this world if we're just sophisticated enough to adopt the right political theory to have the right economic policy. Right, Jurgen? <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, the European Union thinks that they've come up with a scheme that's going to be good for them, but time will tell. Here's what uh, is true about our own homes. A little ditty. To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be gory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> and so whether it's on the level of the family, the church, or nations... Um, I, I'm sorry, but I'll quote Bob Dylan, who says, the only peace you'll ever have is the time it takes you to stop and reload the gun. And that's pretty true in history. Um, my favorite story uh, about peace in the church comes from a man who my wife's father and my father both had their lives very much bound up with when they were young men. And that's a man named Carl McIntyre. How many of you have heard of Carl McIntyre? Carl McIntyre was a young Presbyterian pastor who uh, began to see the liberalism in the Presbyterian church, the national denomination. 
And with J. Gresham Machen and a number of other men of God, they pulled out of that denomination and started their own denomination. Uh, back uh, in 1937, the General Assembly expelled Machen and a number of pastors from the denomination because they had set up an independent board of foreign missions. Now, the reason they had done this was that there were many missionaries of the Presbyterian Church who were not faithful to the gospel. One of the prominent ones, do any of you know, a woman named, who wrote a book named The Good Earth, Pearl Buck. And uh, there was a great deal of fighting in the church over the fact that there were missionaries who did not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were sent overseas to preach the gospel and to witness to people about Jesus Christ being the only way to heaven. And they didn't believe it, and they were quite public about this. So these men started an independent board of foreign missions, and the denomination ended up uh, expelling them, ex, you know, removing them from the denomination because of their, their speaking up for the Lord. Well, that's all well and good, except that when they were expelled, almost immediately, Carl uh, McIntyre led another division. And this time it was a very small division. It was a division of maybe uh, 30 to 50 pastors and elders. They'd, they'd, they'd been expelled and now Carl McIntyre got them to divide again. And you know what the issue was that he got them to divide over? He got them to divide over two things, premillennialism and alcohol. And so tragically, immediately after taking a stand for the Lord, you ended up having these Christian men split over whether or not Christians were allowed to drink alcohol and whether or not the proper eschatology in Scripture is premillennialism. Now, if you don't know about that, praise God, and I'm not going to tell you. All right? And I think you all know about alcohol. Well, now, maybe Carl McIntyre thought that he was the only faithful man, right? And so Carl McIntyre split. Uh, J. Oliver Buswell of Wheaton College, the president there, went with the McIntyre side. Some argue about why he did that. We don't know. And uh, he was, by the way, I think the grandfather of Kathleen Nielsen, who spoke at our uh, women's retreat a couple years ago. And uh, so then what happened to Carl McIntyre? Well, Carl McIntyre... Um, in 1937, in 1956, he was behind uh, the general. He was behind the Bible Presbyterian Church, and in 1956, he got this denomination he had started to vote to leave the American Council of Christian Churches and the International Council of Christian Churches, which he had founded, and this split his denomination, the Bible Presbyterian Church, into two. When they had their original split, it was the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the Bible Presbyterian Church, right? Now, he has the Bible Presbyterian. He gets it to split again, right? This split his denomination into two. The majority of the denomination that did not go with McIntyre included a famous man named Francis Schaeffer, all right? Who, by the way, if you have not read his little book called The Mark of the Church... It takes like 20 minutes to read. It is absolutely excellent, all right? And you can find it easily. Just go on the Internet and type Mark of a Christian and Schaefer, and Google will spit it out. 
So the majority went with Schaefer, and they gave McIntyre, not wanting to fight, they gave him the name of their denomination, they gave him their college, they gave him their seminary, Faith Seminary, which is where my father was trained, where Schaefer was trained, and a couple of other associations. And the remainder formed the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And in 1965, they joined a group from the United Presbyterian Church to become the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, which joined the PCA in 1982. And that's my denomination. All right? So that's how Schaefer came in. It's all these divisions, right? What we call, those of us who are pastors, the split peas. All right? Presbyterians. But then, the next decades were years of split falling split. In 1971, several professors left Faith Theological Seminary and started the Biblical Theological Seminary in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. In 1984, McIntyre withdrew from the Bible Presbyterian Church. I mean, they only left him a few churches, but he had to withdraw from them. Um, During the General Assembly, he refused to answer questions about financial accountability, and the denomination refused to elect him as moderator. And so he walked out. All right? And he started another denomination called the Bible Presbyterian Church Collingswood Synod. Now, synod normally means something of substance, but Collingswood, how many of you have ever heard of Collingswood? Now, Jill, you have, right? But I mean, I don't think anybody else here has, and that's because Jill's been around Philadelphia. Collingswood is like, uh, well, I don't want to insult anybody here, but, you know, it's like a suburb of Nashville, Indiana. <laughs> okay? I mean, it's bigger than that, but Collingswood Synod? So, so what's this, Right? Well, this is a man trying to justify himself. That denomination consists of two congregations. The Collingswood Church, whose building holds 1,200 people with less than 50 attending when this was written, and another congregation of a dozen people who meet in the offices of the Independent Board of Foreign Missions, and then a congregation in New York that has 10 members, and then also a congregation in Adelaide, Australia, and in Burma. Now, a few years ago, 1999, what happened? Well, Carl McIntyre, at the age of 92, had a fight with his own church. Now, remember, his denomination's two churches. So he has a fight with his elders at his church, and what happens? His church divides. I kid you not. Ten people, and they divide. Now, now listen, brothers and sisters, you laugh at that, but some of you, I ask you about your own marriages. There are only two of you, and you divide, okay, lest we feel real superior to this dude. Okay, so what happens? They divide. Two disorderly congregational meetings at the Collingswood Church resulted in the elders appealing to the denomination... Now, mind you, the denomination is this other church with ten people. So they appealed to the denomination, and the presbytery sided against McIntyre and declared his pulpit vacant. Okay, how many people? You know, okay, that's like this side back to approximately Chris and Shelley. It's a whole denomination, all right? Half of them are at one church, half of them are at the other, They meet together and they decide that McIntyre can't be pastor of half of them, all right? 
The Presbytery sided against McIntyre, declared the pulpit vacant. Collingswood is still sending McIntyre two checks a month, but he's now preparing a lawsuit. He asserts that he has solid legal grounds to take the session and Presbytery to court and force them to reinstate him as senior pastor. When asked whether his plans violated Paul's injunction against believers filing lawsuits against believers, McIntyre answered in the negative, quote, no, he said, this is about money, unquote. Okay. Now, McIntyre has since died. When he died, he was involved in this fight. Now, I'm choosing a case that is so awful that all of us can feel superior to it, and that makes us feel secure, right? We can look at it and we can say, that's pathetic, and it is pathetic. And yet I come back and I say, um, what about you and your own marriage? And what about you and your own home? What about your relationship to your brothers, to your sisters? What about the women that you get together with for playgroup? What about your Bible study? What about your dorm room? Do you live in peace? Does the peace of Christ rule you? Now, when it says, let the peace of Christ rule you, it is not talking about some cosmic feeling that, that just pervades the groups that we're a part of. Rule is an aggressive word. Uh, Taylor plays soccer, and it's much like uh, the refs at a soccer game. What do they do? Well, they call tripping. They call uh, unfair kicks. They call offsides. They call line violations. They call free kicks, penalty kicks. Uh, they call, uh, they even can eject people from games. That's the kind of action that the peace of Christ takes among us. The peace of Christ is not this drug that everybody takes and all of a sudden there's like harmony. You know, it's not a chant, a mantra that you say over and over again and somehow it just makes us forget everything we were thinking before we said it. In other words, in the church... In 1 Corinthians 11:19, it says, There must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. There's absolutely no way to bring peace without fighting. Now, I know you say, well, how can that be? It says, let the peace of Christ rule. Well, the reason is that not only are our motives sinful, but our intellectual understanding is defective because of the fall. That means that when one of the kids up here said, one of the little children said, that the Bible, the message of Scripture, helps us come to peace. He was exactly reflecting the role of Scripture. And in fact, it says in our text, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another. And so the Bible clearly has a role of being a part of the peace of Christ that, that governs us. But again, how does that work? Well, the way it works is we preach, we teach, we read. In our own homes we do these things. But we argue because there are different positions on the millennium, on alcohol. There are different positions on Halloween. There are different positions on birth control, on head coverings. There are different positions on all these things. And when it says here... For there must also be factions among you, divisions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. 
How do you show who's right except with a good, fair argument? And that's one of the pathetic things about America today when we look at the politics. Oh, I'm done. My stage just dropped under me. Uh, What? Okay, finish your sentence. All right. I mean, you look at America today and you look at how we work out peace in America and largely it's name-calling. The peace of Christ has to rule us. Argue about Scripture, study it, be taught it, but we can't call names. We have to be willing to have this be our standard like Luther and to say, here I stand. You can show me from Scripture how you're right. I will listen. And that is the peace of Christ ruling us. So many of you are so petrified of conflict that you don't do the work that's necessary to have true peace. And that work in our marriages, for instance, often requires hard, hard arguments. And your wife should argue with you at times. I hope she does. If not, she's not a helpmate. But there comes a time for the peace of Christ, and I have to stop. Um, Because still this morning, right, we have the reception of new members, and as we receive these new members, you are making a promise, and they are making a promise to have the peace of Christ rule you. Not that you'll ever have disagreements, but that those disagreements will be under the peace of Christ and under his word.